Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Chuck Potts, uh, and I am privileged to be joining you this morning as your candidate for pastor of youth and young adults. And um, let me just say, um, your leadership, your counsel, your search team has been um, so wonderful to me and my family, and I just want to say thank you up front for being um, just great hosts for us. Um, your hospitality is much appreciated. Um, if you haven't got a chance to meet me yet, I hope that we get an opportunity. I've had a couple of you have been able to hear your stories, and it's been really great um, to familiarize myself with you, and I hope you've gotten a chance to get to know me a little bit. Uh, in case you haven't, though, uh, my wife Heather is here with me, and uh, joining us is oh, my mother-in-law as well, and our three kids. Um, they were quite nervous to come up here in front of you guys, but they did anyway. I'm very proud of them. They held hands the whole time. It's kind of cute. Um, we, uh, we, right now, we live in Stillman Valley, Illinois, where I've served as pastor for the past eight years. Um, my wife and I have been married for 11, and um, we, uh, we, we love to be busy as we always are. We love to spend time together as a family as much as we can. Uh, we love to go on vacations together. We're big Disney fans. I know it's stereotypical, but <laughs> we, uh, we love to, to make sure we plan those times and go on these trips together um, because we enjoy... We enjoy the business, but we enjoy each other even more. Um, a little about myself. I also don't know how many of you guys have read my bio, so some of this is repeat. But um, my, uh, my undergrad experience was in film, and I went so far as to go to L.A. for a semester where I determined that that was a hobby and not my career. It was a bad time to find that out. Um, but... Um, but it, what, what it d was for me is it was eye-opening and, and it revealed to me my love for just storytelling, which has played right into what I love about um, being a pastor as well. I love stories. Jesus loved stories. Um, I love what stories can tell and what they could teach us. Um, and so I want to share with you one of our favorite, as a family, one of our favorite uh, movies and stories because I think it has something to say and teach us this morning. Um, how many of you have seen the movie Inside Out? Good, a good number of you. Everyone who didn't raise your hand, I'm sorry, you've had like nine or so years to see it. I'm about to ruin the whole plot for you. Uh, I apologize. Um, but if you haven't seen it, here's how the, the story goes. Um, it's about a girl named Riley who uh, has grown up all of her life in Minnesota, and her dad gets a new job and takes them to San Francisco. Um, and the whole story is about the trauma, the emotions that she's wrestling with that she doesn't quite understand. Um, and in the movie, the emotions are depicted as five unique characters, um, and you can see them here. Uh, the, the middle one is Joy, very uh, excited about everything. She actually has like a glow about her, and she's Riley's most predominant emotion. Uh, next to her is Sadness, who <laughs> looks like she feels, um, and is another important character in this story of her struggle with understanding what was going on in her life. You have Anger, who literally lights on, lights on fire when he's really fired up. Fear is one of my favorites because he's kind of wimpy and uh, scared of little everything. I think he's actually my most predominant uh, sometimes. Uh, and then disgust at the end is exactly who she looks like. She's sassy and, and fun. So um, in the story, these emotions show how um, Riley feels and how she interacts with the world around her and the moments she experiences. Um, and throughout the story, you see this trauma she's experiencing um, some circumstances happen that takes the characters, the, the emotions of joy and sadness out of the headquarters and into her memories. And while they're, while they're there, she can no longer feel joyful or sad. 
and old stories about them trying to get back so that she can process this difficult time in their life. And so we walk alongside joy and sadness in this journey back, and along the way they discover uh, Riley's old imaginary friend named Bing Bong, who is one of my favorites. He is made of cotton candy and looks like a variety of animals. Uh, Whenever he cries, it's pieces of candy like a two-year-old might imagine. Um, And he is the imaginary friend that Riley grew up with. And he knows his way around, and so he is going to take them on a journey back to their headquarters. Uh, but in the clip I'm going to show you, if, if you haven't seen it before, uh, they're on their way, they're in this imagination land, and Bing Bong, who lives there, notices that things are being torn down. Riley's growing up, and as, as she does, she's forgetting some of the things she imagined along the way. And it makes Bing Bong wonder, will Riley forget me too? And you see, in this moment of him recognizing the truth of this, joy and sadness come around him. And let's watch and see how they interact. Bing Bong, we have to get to that station. Sure thing. This way, just past Graham Cracker Castle. Hey. Weird. Graham Cracker Castle used to be right here. I wonder why they moved it. Well, I I would have sworn Sparkle Pony Mountain was right here. Hey, what's going on? something that you loved. It's gone. Forever. Sadness. Don't make him feel worse. Sorry. It's all he had left of Riley. I bet you and Riley had great adventures. Oh, they were wonderful. Once we flew back in time. We had breakfast twice that day. Sadness. Sounds amazing. I bet Riley liked it. Oh, she did. We were best friends. So like I said, I, I love movies, and it's for moments like this movie, like this moment. It actually really sold the whole thing for me. 
this depiction of a trauma and how emotion either helps or can sometimes hurt. For Bing Bong, he was confused, he was sad, and joy was trying to make him forget, trying to make him downplay the reality of the moment and what he was experiencing so they could move on together, so she could get where she needed to go and where she wanted to go. But in the opposite, sadness came alongside of Bing Bong, sat there with him, empathized with him, felt the pain of the moment with him, acknowledged the reality of it, and sat there, present in his story. And that was enough to help him move through it instead of bypass it or forget it or downplay it. I love this moment because of the truth of what it says about the power of presence, the power of being present with someone else in the reality of their life, in the human condition that they live, sitting and being fully present with them. I think as a society, we've misunderstood presence. We love to be present when it's good, right? When you're feeling good, when you're with people you love, when you're having a good time. That's where the whole phrase of um, uh, time flies when you're having fun. That's being present when it's good, right? All these things are, chemicals are going off in the brain. It feels good and you want to stay in that. We like being present when it's good. But it's our natural inclination to avoid times when it's bad. And a lot of times when things are bad in our own life, we can't avoid that. But what I love about this scene is it shows how sometimes when someone can come alongside of you and be present with you, it actually helps. Helps the process along. It helps to know that you're not alone. Uh, theologian and author Henry Nowen, uh, he said, Let us not underestimate how hard it is to be compassionate. Compassion is hard because it requires the inner disposition to go with others to the place where they are weak, they are vulnerable, lonely, and broken. But this is not our spontaneous response to suffering. What we desire most is to do away with suffering by fleeing from it or finding a quick cure for it. As busy, active, and relevant people, we want to earn our bread by making a real contribution. This means, first and foremost, doing something to show that our presence makes a difference. And so we ignore our greatest gift, which is our ability to enter into solidarity with those who suffer. That's the reality of being able to be present with the other. And I want to talk more about that presence. But first, by sharing a personal story from my life. Um, When I was going to college, uh, my first year, in 2005, 2006, I went to Covenant Bible College, which most of you probably don't know what it is. Um, But it was a school that used to exist in our denomination. Um, It was a one-year theology and discipleship program. And I didn't want to go alone, so I took a friend of mine. His name is Antoine. This is Babyface Chuck. So you know what I looked like a long time ago? It was like half of me. But uh, and my friend Antoine, we worked at Covenant Harbor for three summers at, up to that point, And uh, we're great friends. And he decided he wanted to come alongside with me. And so we spent the year together in all the classes, living under the same roof. 
And that bond grew even closer. We shared in tough moments ourselves um, and were there for one another. In 2006, about two weeks after I said goodbye to him at CBC, he died in a car accident. And the, the pain of that is obviously so visceral still that even just bringing it up just brings me right back to the pain of that moment of finding out. And I remember feeling immediately broken by it in a way that I hadn't experienced to that point. A friend so close to be lost in such a tragic way, it was different than losing a grandparent or anything else. It was so unexpected. I had no playbook. All I could do was be and keep breathing. And I remember so clearly the days that followed uh, all of our friends from camp and from CBC uh, within days, we, we got all our schedules together, and we made it out to his hometown for, for the funeral, and we stayed in a church. There's like 50 of us in this really tiny church, and uh, sleeping on the floor in sleeping bags, and, um, and we spent two days together, and it was beautiful. It was sad, and it was hard. There's a lot of stories that were tough, but a lot that made us laugh, because he was just a funny guy, and we were with each other, present in our pain together. It's one of the most powerful memories I have of presence in my life, of knowing that I'm not alone, knowing that there's solidarity with me and my friends as we grieved. And I tell you, the power of that moment of us together made the world of a difference for all of us. I still believe it's the only reason we got through it was because we were together. This is the power of presence. There's a Jewish tradition um, that uh, highlights this. It's um, commonplace in Jewish culture that when a close family member dies, um, they go through an initial phase of grieving, and then they go through what's called the shiva, which is a Hebrew word that means seven, and it stands for seven days that starts from when the burial ends and goes straight through for seven full days. And all of the immediate family members... Um, they are to go back home, to close the door, and be for seven days, to be fully present in their grief, to feel it with each other for those seven days. And while they're there, they're supposed to like cover mirrors because it's not about them. They don't want any distractions. They want to be fully present in their grief. But there's an important role for the community as well. And it's called to go in, uh, it's called sitting shiva where they, the community members around them are to go to their house and be what's called the Nishim Avelam, which is Hebrew for the morning comforter. They're there to be there and present with them in their morning. And that comfort doesn't come from them doing what we may think. They don't bring cookies and, you know, go over and clean the house for them. And anything that might distract or get in their way, their role is simply to come and walk in the door and to sit and to be present with them, to be there for what they may need. If they need someone to talk to, their responsibility is to listen. And like sadness in the movie, to, uh, to acknowledge the reality of the grief. But they're specifically required not to try to fix it. They're not to insert their own stories. They're to sit, to listen, to say, I'm sorry, and to be a presence. I have a, a good friend of mine who lost a son, an adult son. And in talking about this with her, she told me that in the days that followed, she had a friend that came to her house 
and sat with her by the window and held her hand for hours without saying a word. Just someone to be there for her to cry with so that she wasn't alone as she processed her grief. This is an example of the power of presence. And it's a power that we've forgotten, a power that we don't often do in our society. We're either too busy, we're overscheduled, we're intentionally not aware, we avoid it. We've forgotten how important it is. How important it is to living life in community together. There's a Catholic priest in the 1800s who discovered this power of being and living together. He, uh, his name is Charles de Foucauld, and he was a priest in um, Algeria, sent to start a church there uh, in the Sahara, and uh, it didn't go well for him. He, he started it, and people just weren't interested. And so after a while of uh, attempts, he decided to stop trying to do the normal thing. He wasn't going to preach sermons anymore or do fancy turn to phrase and try to get people on board. He decided to make his entire mission and ministry about being with them. And he's quoted as saying that it's not necessary to teach others to cure them or to improve them. It is only necessary to live among them, sharing the human condition and being present to them in love. There's power in being present with one another as we deal with the reality of life. God made us to be present in this way. You guys have been going through the book of Genesis, and you guys have heard how God saw that the human creation was not fit to be alone, so he gave another human creation and to be in community together with each other, with God. We're not made to be alone, and not just for the good, but for the reality of life as well. And God, along the way, wanted so bad to be with us because we broke that for him. We set a barrier in between him of sin. We did that, and he was not there, but he wanted to. And so the whole Old Testament is about him trying to be present with us again, to be in community with us again through the tabernacle, through individuals, through a family in the Middle East. And then we get to the person of Jesus, who we sing about every year, Emmanuel, God with us. It's been God's plan to be present with us again. He made us for this. We, as as believers, as those that claim to be Christians, to be Christ followers, we should follow in Christ's example of being with one another. Not just those that it's easy to, not just, I mean, it's easy to be present with family, but with the other, with the widow, the orphan, the one hurting, the one that's different from, from you, that has a different story from you. We are called to emulate Christ who was there and present with all he encountered. And that's the example that we see in John 4, which there are many examples of Jesus being present. In fact, if you think about it, we talked about it a little bit in the Q&A last night about how um, the, the four Gospels depict, uh, like, if you add it all up, a couple days' worth of ministry between the sermons and the miracles. But if you, you look in between the lines, you see there's so much time lived with his disciples, with the people in whatever village and town he was with. Jesus was present with everyone. And that's what this story is about, him being present with this Samaritan woman. And I'm not going to go through it piece by piece because you probably heard it preached on. It's a popular 
um, it's a popular passage to, to learn from. And actually, it's the longest conversation that's depicted in the Gospels of uh, Jesus with someone. And so there's a lot you can pull from it. But a couple key highlights to show. Um, first of all, Jesus was breaking down very early on in this the barrier that kept that relationship from happening, kept them from being able to be with each other. He broke down the barrier of gender um, where he spoke to her, which was not commonplace. That's a very basic barrier that we think now is, of course, that should be normal. That was good that he did that. There's also the reality of the cultural differences between the Samaritans and the Jews, which you might think of Samaritan, you might immediately think of the good Samaritan, um, but if you know the history, there's a lot of animosity between these groups of people. The, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel in the Old Testament, about 721 BC, they were exiled, taken by the Assyrians away, and the land was then allowed to be settled by other people, and the Samaritans were part of this group. And so later down the road, when the, the southern kingdom, the Jews, came back from their exile in Babylon, they see all these people living there that were in their God-given promised land, and they built walls, literally and figuratively, between them. In fact, when they were building the literal wall, the Samaritans came to, to ask if they could help, and the Jews said, no, this is our wall, this is our place, you are not to be here. And it began this history of not even being able to accept help from a Samaritan. And so Jesus breaks down this wall in this story when he asks her, a Samaritan woman, for a cup of water. It is breaking down those barriers so that he may be present with her. We also see through the story that the, the Samaritan woman has a history that has caused her to be separate from others, uh, to be shamed as an outcast. She's depicted as undesirable because uh, Jesus shows how she had five husbands and that the person she was with was not her husband. And we have to, we have to take off our Western lens and put on the lens of the, the people that it was written for uh, because so often we look at that and we think, oh, well, she must have been an adulteress and so she was a sinner. And that's why Jesus, you know, he was healing her and forgiving her of that, which may be, but that's not what it says. What the story says was that she was married five times. And culturally, you would know that in that area, it was illegal for the woman to divorce the man. So she was the divorcee. She was the one cast out. She was the one that was undesirable. So much to where her current person she was with was not marrying her. She went to the well in the middle of the day because all the other women went in the morning when it was cool, and she wasn't to be with them. She was an outcast. So Jesus sits with her in her pain of her story, fully aware of it, acknowledging the reality, like sadness did with being wrong, acknowledging the reality of her suffering. And he, what does he offer her? Salvation. He offers himself living water, a gift that the Jews thought were, was reserved for them. He offers it freely to her. He doesn't give her a step-by-step -step instructional of how to fix her life or uh, back when I did this, this is how I handled it. No, he just simply offered himself in his presence to her. Jesus understood the power of presence. And that's what this story is really about. And I think the most eye-opening part of the story actually is what comes next. And it's a part that's often not uh, preached about um, 
which is why I love it so much. But after the story, you see the disciples, they come back and um, they, they're kind of questioning why he's talking to the Samaritan woman. And the Samaritan woman is just so transformed by the power of this conversation and this moment of Jesus sitting and being present with her that she runs back to the village. She tells all the rest of the Samaritan what's going on. Um, so excited about the transformation taking place in her life. And they're interested. They're like, okay, is this this Messiah guy that the Jews have been talking about for like 400 years? We have to go meet him. And so in, in verse 40... John chapter 4, verse 40. It says that, So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves. We know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Jesus stayed with them, and it transformed the whole region, the whole city. The, what's interesting to me is, is when you go back and you look at the original language, which I think is always fascinating to do, because too often our translation is just doing its best, but that's really all it can do, is its best. But the original Greek is so powerful in, in the way it's used, and the way the authors so carefully use it, and the word here for stayed um, is unfortunately translated to stayed. Uh, the Greek word is, is the word meno, which is used 120 times in the New Testament and a lot of times by John, this author. And the other ways he uses it, is, it really is more telling of what he's trying to say here. It's commonly translated more so as the words abide and, and to remain and to dwell. The Greek lexicon says that it's to continue to be present, to endure to remain as one. Sometimes it's translated as to wait, which literally means to be and do nothing, to be steadfast. Sometimes it's translated as to tarry, which I honestly never use that word in my vocabulary, so I had to look it up. Um, if you use to tarry, you got a, a very deep language. Um, but to tarry, I'd look it up, and I, I found out it was, it was kind of like saying to loiter or to hang out which is a millennial, I know what it means to hang out. So like Jesus was hanging out with these Samaritans. I get that. And the, the power of the transformation of what happened was because he menoed, he remained and dwelled with them. It doesn't say that he was there preaching and teaching and healing and all these other things. We assume that. It's such a quick verse, we scan over it. But the reality is, is the transformation was because he stayed and he remained with them present in their stories. Like I said, this word is, is used other places in John in such powerful ways, in ways that you probably recognize. Like in John 1.32, when Jesus is baptized, it says that John gave testimony saying, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and meno on him and remain on him. John 6.56 it says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains, menos in me, and I in them. Like Jesus remained there in Sakar with the Samaritans, and they remained with him. Or John 15, 4 and 5, a popular one we remember, says it a whole bunch of times. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. 
Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. If you remain in me, and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And the people in the Sakaar, they bared much fruit because they remained with Jesus, and Jesus remained with them for two days. Jesus understood the power of presence. As Christ followers, in his example, we need to be present with one another. So I ask you this morning, when's the last time you were really present with the other? Not just with a family member or someone that's easy to be in their, their stories, but when were you intentionally present, engaged in someone's life? Offering a moment with them. And along with that, like these stories, when was the last time that you allowed yourself to be fully present with God? He said God wants to be with us, present with us in our stories. When was the last time you were fully present with him? I know for me, so often, my time with God is filled with me and me and me and things I need and I don't become present with him as much as I go to him with a whole list of things. And sometimes I have to remind myself to just go to God and be again. And so what I want to do this morning as I close is I want to offer a practice to help us do this. Um, I'll invite the, the worship team to come forward. And I'm going to invite everyone else um, into a, a prayer practice where you're at to help us get used to this idea of being present a little bit more. And I say practice because it really is th- that. Practice, we practice things that we're not always good at or don't come, doesn't come naturally to us. And so we're going to practice what it means to be present with God for a moment. Um, and after we, we I'm going to set you up with a few prompts um, and uh, navigate that for you. And after we can get into that moment, we're just going to stay for a minute in the quiet, in your space, We're going to remain for a moment, meno for a moment, and allow God's presence to be with you. And after a few moments, uh, the worship team is going to play a song that um, is very reflective of being present in that space with Jesus. And you don't have to sing it. You don't have to even open your eyes. You can remain in that space if you'd like. If you'd like to sing it, if you'd like to watch the words, they'll be on the screen. Experience the moment of presence the way you feel you need in that moment. So to start, I want to invite you first, if you will, um, to center yourself by just closing your eyes and getting in your space for a moment. If you need to get comfortable in your seats or with your hands or whatever um, you need to do to remove distractions and start to be just present. I invite you to start with just focusing on You're breathing. Take a few deep breaths in and out. In and out. Breathing in the breath of God. Focusing just on the simple being by breathing. And as you breathe, I invite you to start considering your thoughts as they come into your head. 
all the things that would distract you. And I want you to think of them like a revolving door. As they come in, you allow them to go right back out. Any thoughts of the moment, thoughts of today, thoughts of anything that will distract you from just being. Clear it all out. Make room to remain as you breathe in and breathe out in the presence of God.